0: March Madness, right? It is upon us. Uh, Lots of you have already thought I was going to say mean things. I would just like to tip my hat to Purdue. You guys got hosed, in my opinion. I think the refs were playing for the other team. That's all I'm going to say. Uh, but what a great season! March Madness, though, right? I I love it. Like even if you are not a sportsman, my wife is not a big sportsman. Um, but she has been following along in our church's bracket challenge, and she's very excited currently that she is beating me. Um, she lets me know quite often that she's beating me right now. And, uh, but there's something about it, right? March is great because people can go from just being like a nobody to being kind of immortalized because they hit one shot. They made one big mistake. They did all sorts of things. And every year around this time of year, I feel like the dominant question that will always kind of come back into people's mind, because lots of people are thinking about basketball, is the silly question of who is the greatest of all time? Who's the GOAT? Now, you're going to hear all sorts of different arguments, right? Around here, I'm not, I'm not saying this meanly, but like around here, a lot of you guys are homers and you're like, ah, oh, it's Larry Legend, right? Larry Bird, is this even a question? Of course it's Larry Bird. Now, you'll find other people who are young and naive and will say it's LeBron James. You'll find some people more in my age bracket who are like, ah, but it was Kobe. Just because everyone says Kobe when they shoot. It's not Kobe. We all know that we could have a, a lively discussion. Maybe maybe if you're a little bit wiser in years, you're like, Will Chamberlain, the guy put up 100 points. Mind you, we don't actually have any proof other than a guy holding a piece of paper that says 100 points. I'm just saying. I'm not saying it's a conspiracy theory, but it might be. Some would say it's Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, maybe even Lou Alcindor. Who knows? Thank you for, like, the five people who got that. But we all truly know that at the end of the day it's Michael Jordan, right? This is, this isn't even a real question, right? Six championships. I mean, his, his legendariness started as a freshman hitting the game winner to win a championship for the North Carolina Tar Heels. But we're kind of obsessed with this question, aren't we in culture? We love to think about and and talk about who is the greatest. One thing that I think is really interesting, I don't think Kokomo is unique in this, but I found out that I thought was interesting is how the local newspaper will do, like, the best of. And, uh, like, I'm, I'm okay with that. I understand, like, oh, let's think about, like, what's the best. Doctor or dentist or veterinarian office or a restaurant or whatever, but it's even interesting I've saw which is just a weird thing that they have the best church or the best pastor and I think wow What a weird kind of thing, but we kind of like this, right? We like ranking things. We like looking at things as like a order of like who is who is the greatest? We, we love the Muhammad Ali type of philosophy. I'm the greatest right and there's something in our uh, american dna i'm not saying all of this is bad but where we we want to strive for greatness right like no one no one has children and says man i really hope my kids underperform and no one likes them like none of us are like man i cannot wait to have d plus students no one does that right Because we want to see good things happen. And there is something intrinsically inside of us, I believe, that we want to be seen. We want to be known. And sometimes that bleeds out into this idea of wanting to be the greatest fill in the blank. I wanted to be the greatest basketball player of all time. God wanted me to go into ministry. And that's why he made me, you know, six foot three ish, um, you know, okay, maybe not. We're obsessed with this, right? In in scripture we find that even, even even the those who were the most holy were obsessed with this idea. They're obsessed with power and, and greatness. And so this morning we are continuing in our series called The Kingdom, in which we have been walking through parts of the Gospel of Matthew, and we've been looking at this major theme that Jesus talks about uh, of the kingdom in his kingdom. And and if you haven't been here with us, let me me, bring you up to speed just a little bit. When we talk about kingdoms in ancient cultures, this is going to shock you, but when they said kingdoms, all they really meant was that there was a king and there was a people group, right? I mean, kind of mind-blowing, right? And so when Jesus talks about the kingdom, he is the king, and those of us who claim to be his followers, who are seeking to be his followers, are a part of the kingdom, and we've looked throughout different spots and looked at kingdom wisdom. In the last few weeks, we've been talking about authority. We've been talking about this, this idea how we tend to not like authority, yet if we want to have the kingdom, we have to have the king. That if we want to truly be a child of God, we have to submit to the Father. And that is difficult for many of us because there is baggage, there is uh, uh, bad things that are, are tied in with words like authority, that feels like a swear word. But this morning, we're going to talk about greatness and success. So if you have a Bible this morning, you can open up to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 18. And we're going to be looking in Matthew 18 and Matthew 20. If you have a Bible, you can obviously go there. We're going to start in verse 1. If not, it will be up on the screen. This is Matthew chapter 18 verse 1 at the time the disciples came to Jesus and they asked who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven called a little child to him and he placed the child among them and he said I tell you the truth unless you change and become like one of these little children you will never enter the kingdom of heaven therefore whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such, one such child in my name welcomes me. This may be a somewhat familiar passage to some of you. It's this interesting thing. I, I, I have to admit to you, when I read it every time, I think there's like missing words. Cause my, my, my assumption would be that Jesus in his response would probably say something like, I am the greatest, but also this. You know, it's incredibly um, earth-shattering the more I study Jesus, how humble he is. I mean, can you imagine being, I mean, that, that, that's another kind of part of our culture, especially in sports, right? More often than not, sadly, the, the greatest, they know it, and they let you know it. I mean, Michael Jordan, I love him, but he's kind of a terrible human. No offense, Michael, if you're listening. Um, I invited him to my wedding. He didn't ever RSVP back or anything, which is a little, but that's another story for another day. But oftentimes they know it, right? They they let you know it. They, they toy with you. There, there's something about when you are great, you kind of feel like you have that authority, that power to let people know, I'm the man, I'm the lady, I got this. And it's so incredibly refreshingly weird that Jesus, who is fully God, fully man, has has powers unlike us, who, who just does amazing things. I mean, we're not talking even like this is, you know, some, some scholars wonder about, you know, when did, did Jesus always know? Was he born with knowing? Or, or did he have sort of this Spider-Man moment where he began to realize he had these powers and he was the Son of God? Regardless of that, this isn't one of those moments where it's earlier on. Jesus has done many miracles at this point. He's cast out demons. He's done all of these different things. And at this point, when the the question is asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, his initial response isn't himself. I mean, there's a lesson in that right there of just this humility, this selflessness that Jesus Christ portrayed and that he calls us to. That even though it is all about Jesus, and that if we miss Jesus, we miss everything, it's this reality that Jesus didn't need to make his name great. Jesus didn't want to make it all about him in that moment because he was so humble. But let's talk about how crazy this is. There's a key word in this scripture where he says, unless you change. Unless you change. You know, so many of us, if we're really honest, we want the easy fix, right? We want to have everything without sacrificing anything, right? We want to lose weight without changing our diet without exercising i know i do like a lot like i wish donuts would be some sort of like a calorie like burner and i found that they are not scientific uh, experiment i've been doing but we want that right unless we change so why does jesus take a child in this moment why does he do this Here's why I think it, why you think he did this in in this ancient culture. We, we, we have to take ourselves back. We we live in a culture currently that in some ways we probably make children. We could almost borderline make children idols. They're all our lives. And in fact, sometimes we see marriages and we see parents who fall apart when their children eventually leave the nest because all of their worth, their value identity was made up in them. And that's an overcorrection. But in this ancient culture. In a lot of ways, children were not seen with much value at all. They were not allowed to be used in uh, most legal type of things as a witness. Uh, they didn't really have any much power. Oftentimes, they were really there. They were really oftentimes procreated. Well, I'm not going to get into the, the PG-13 reason why they were procreated. I think we all know that. But it was typically so that they could have help. You know, they would become uh, help around a farm, help around a certain shop. Uh, but oftentimes it wasn't until they hit more of an age of puberty and they could become um marrying age and things like that or, or or more heavy working age that they were seen as valued, in a lot of ways, even seen hardly as human. And so in this moment, as these these men, these disciples who feel, have to feel at this point, like I don't know about you, but if if, if I was riding with Jesus through all of this sort of thing, there'd be part of me that'd start feeling pretty good about myself, like I got chosen, <laughs> Like all these other losers, they didn't get chosen. I am walking around with the son of man. I am hot stuff. Like that's how I'd feel. If I make a random basket still, like I still, like if I was to shoot the basketball right now and I made it, I won't lie. There'd probably be a part of me in the back of my mind and be like, man, the Detroit Pistons could use some help and they're probably going to call soon. So I can't even imagine if I was walking with Jesus. And so when they ask this question, they have to be thinking that one of them is maybe going to get the call up like, Listen, I'm number one, I'm Jesus, and I'm number one, and then Peter, you're number two, number three, and all that. And so when Jesus takes a child, it's crazy. It's crazy, because for them, the reality is they probably didn't even notice them. They probably, if they noticed them, they saw them as a nuisance. They didn't see much value in them. Most scholars think that likely because they just said a child and they didn't say a little boy, that there's a likelihood that it was probably a little girl. You know, in ancient culture, what was really terribly sad is ladies obviously were even of less value in that time. They didn't pass on a family name. And oftentimes what's really sad, and we're seeing some of these sort of terrible things still happen in our time and culture today, many times when little girls were born, they were just cast off, thrown away because the families didn't want to take on extra burdens of finances and things like that, and they, they didn't have as much of sort of value in that culture. It's pretty terrible. And so when Jesus likely took this little girl and said, this is the greatest. If you want to experience the kingdom, you must become like one of these little children. It's got to be incredibly crazy to them because they're sitting there thinking, but this, what do you mean? This child has hardly any value. What does this mean? You know, I think there's a lot of things that it could mean. Some of it could mean just we need to become a little bit more lowly being willing to not care about status. I think that is true, and we're going to get more into that. But I, I have to think there's something about kids that are just amazing in the way that they think. There's going to be a picture up here uh, of my two boys and my wife partially because I want to remind people that I, I do have a family that are just staying away from all the sickness right now. Um, I, have a, I have an almost three-year-old, and my son Silas is, what did he just turn, five weeks old, six weeks old? I'm terrible. Um, I'm not the greatest dad in the world. I don't have a great memory. I told you that. Um, I love this picture, though. They're looking at their beautiful mom, who is a total babe. Go me. And uh, But I, I love when I see this picture because I'm just reminded of the sense of wonder. Kids have just this neat Um, imagination. They, they, They have all of these things where they just think every little small thing is the coolest. For a little while, one of my favorite things that my son Gideon and I would do is I have never seen anyone be more excited in their life than when my son sees a school bus. I mean, we are just driving around and you would think that he just saw his favorite athlete. You'd think he saw Jesus Christ himself. Daddy, a school bus, a school bus. He loves it. There's so much joy so much excitement You know, I wonder if part of what jesus meant was hey, I want you to be excited I want you to have a sense of wonder an awe a enthusiasm like a child. I think there's some of that The other thing I wonder about Is if it's kind of like how my son gideon likes to play this game that i'm not really a part of I get forced into Called catch me Anyone else have kids who do this? My son has this weird thought that he thinks his dad is athletic. Every kid, it's kind of amazing, right? Every kid thinks their dad is way, like, stronger and buffer and more in action here than they are. I've gone back in time and looked at pictures of my dad. I'm like, man, I trusted him way more than I should have as far as, like, like on the playground, I definitely told people that my dad could beat up their dad, and that was definitely not true. No offense, Dave. Just saying. But there's something about that. And my son Gideon loves, even last night, we're, we're taking a bath. Jumping out of a bathtub is not a good idea. Can we all agree on that? That it's, it's not a good idea. There's wetness. There's all sorts of things. And he just jumps. Like, there, this kid does not have, uh, you know, hops like his dad. Well, maybe he does have hops like his dad. Um, you know, he gets about like a half centimeter off the ground after leaning down as far as he can. But he just does this sometimes where it's like the trustful game. He just jumps. And he's like, catch me, daddy. And then, you know, thus far, knock on all the different woods in case some of this isn't real. I have caught him every time to the point that he hasn't like gotten hurt. But I think in some ways what's been scary is that he is almost getting like more and more brave about it. Like dad caught me last time. Let's see what happens this time. But he always loves to say, great catch dad. Great catch. I love it. I think it perfectly represents this idea of what Jesus is talking about. That there's something about a child that when they're in a positive, good family unit there's something about a parent that they just wholly trust that chaos could be going all on around them and they quite literally could be doomed and yet they have this peace and this trust in their parents in their father that they're not going to let them fall that everything's going to be okay and i'm going to listen in those moments I think that's what Jesus meant when he talks about this idea that if we would humble ourselves and stop trying to be adults, because let's be honest, one of the worst things about being adults, right, is stress, right? I mean, kids stress too, but we overthink everything, don't we? We go through this list of worst-case scenarios. We oftentimes spend more time trying to figure out plans ourselves than we spend praying to God for answers. I'm really guilty of that. I will do a five-second prayer of, God, please help me. And spend three days trying to figure out how I can do it without him. And you know what? Almost every time, my plans unravel. And almost every time, he comes through. Not the way that I want it all the time. I should say he always comes through. But most times he comes through in the way that I was hoping. And it's good. I think if we could be like children we could really experience the kingdom in a great way. But I love this, too, because here at South Creek, we deeply and desperately uh, desire to be a next-generational church. We 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 care about them. We want to be invested in them and the lives of their family. And, and, and some of the root of why that matters so much are verses like this, and, and it's because this, we value children because Jesus valued children. We value children because Jesus valued children, and they are our future, and they are image-bearers of God. You know, one of the the most incredible moments, I think, of Jesus doing that with that little girl is what he was doing is he was giving back dignity. He was giving back her original identity as a daughter of the one true God. She was reminding that the worth and value does not come from what you can do and what you can't do. It doesn't come from what society and culture says this person has. But their value comes deeply from just being an image bearer of Christ. I mean, that just still blows my mind and gets me like all sorts of worked up when I just think about God loves us so much. That he made us in his image, that there's something distinctly unique about us, different than any sort of other animal. And as culture tries to keep moving and saying, well, maybe we're just. Primates and all this and that and the other and we're not going to get into science and and we shouldn't do stupid battles of science versus um, Christianity because I think those are dumb battles. That's a different story. But there's something deeply beautiful about the fact that every single one of us, no matter what our story is, no matter our family of origin, our background, no matter what we've done, that we have so much worth and value just being a son and a daughter, just being created in the image of God. And man, I don't know about you guys, but that's really good news. That makes me super pumped. But that's one of the reasons why. But again, the key word from that verse was unless we change. Unless we change. We can't coerce. We can't try to manipulate the kingdom of God to work for our own gains. We have to be humble. We have to try And experience this idea of weakness because the truth is when we are most weak when we most allow ourselves to be like a child and vulnerable that's when god is most strong when we begin to live our life out of his strength rather than our strength man we're cooking with gas then how many guys have ever heard of helicopter parents so this was this is a popular term uh, a few years ago and uh, if you've never heard of this term uh, helicopter parent was this type of parent who was constantly uh, just like so thickly involved in their kids life that they could hardly move they could hardly breathe they were just uh, man i won't lie when i was in student ministry we didn't really have many when i was doing student ministry here but my last student ministry woof there were a lot of, there were not enough airspace for some of the helicopter parents that were going on there and, you know, a helicopter parent, it's done out of good intention, but it was just all about this trying to try, trying to make sure that their kid is doing everything right and make sure that nothing could go wrong and just that they're doing every single thing right. Helicopter parents, I thought, were like maybe the worst, but it's gotten worse, my friends. I recently was reading an article, and I thought it was interesting, in which now there is a new rise of parenting that is called lawnmower parents. Anyone ever heard of a lawnmower parent? So here's the difference between a helicopter parent and a lawnmower parent. The helicopter parent is is just there, but they're still pushing the kids so much, and they're trying to make sure that everything works out for that. The lawnmower parent is the parent who makes sure that nothing bad happens to their child. And anything that gets in their way... Anything that kind of tears them down, they are just going to run over it like a lawnmower. This is the style of parenting that says uh, there's no way that my perfect child could do anything wrong. You must be mistaken. Teacher who has spent many years studying and 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 knows all these different te- techniques. You do not know my child. You cannot talk to them that sort of way. It's it's this this kind of entitled mentality of where. Your kid's poop doesn't stink, which, let's be honest, everybody's poop stinks. It's, I change a lot of diapers right now; it very much still stinks. I know this for a fact. But it's this really kind of dangerous new uh, phenomenon where parents, I think, and I'm not, I'm not judging you totally if you do that, but I might say there are better ways. But what's end up happening is that we're now having generations of now coming up adults who have never really had to deal with obstacles, have never had to deal with issues, because every time an issue arises, their parent takes care of it for them. You know, scripture has something to say about some of this, and there's lots of scriptures about it, but in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 20, I'm not going to read the entirety, but uh, two of the disciples are named James and John. They had a really cool nickname called the Sons of Thunder, which I just think is really cool. Uh, it also makes me feel like in their household, probably a lot of things were broken. Um, but imagine this. They are following Jesus for a long time. Things are going great. And their mom, though, decides one day as they're hanging out, and uh, I'm sure it's probably like the classic thing like, hey, Jesus, mom wants to have us over to our house. She's got pizza rolls. Can we go? And they go. And uh, But this mom kind of has this audacity to say to Jesus, hey will you grant me this request uh, when 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 your kingdom has has fully came can my son sit on the right and left of you basically what you're saying is can they be the top dogs can they be kind of you know your 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 right and left hand men and there's this there's the now now i'm i'm we can't say for sure for James and John. You know, let's give them maybe a little bit of benefit of the doubt that maybe their mom was just overreaching and not being nice. But there's part of me that's got to say, like, listen, Mom, I've noticed that Jesus seems to be really compassionate towards women. Could you maybe just ask her this? Because if we ask, he's going to say no. Um, it's sort of like when, when you know, like, one of your parents won't say yes when you want to go stay the night at someone's house. So you ask the other one who's a little bit more of a softy. You all know which parent that is, right? Um, but so they ask them. And so this is how Jesus responds to them. Uh, He said this, he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord over different people. He's basically talking about the authority of kind of man-made structures. He said lords over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant or your slave. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave or your servant. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. Now again, man, these poor disciples, I think they signed up thinking like, this is going to be so great, this is awesome. And they get demoralized kind of a lot, right? Like they're asking these questions where they think like, I I saw last night um, there's a NBA basketball player who is going around and he's on his last sort of... Season. And every time at the end of a game, he's been doing a jersey exchange where it's this sort of cool thing. And it's been kind of funny to watch because of course there's, there's, there's all these players. There's a big question about like, all right, what player from this team is going to be worthy of getting the jersey? And last night, I felt really bad for this guy, but he totally went for the ask like, Hey man, you want to do the jersey swap? And he definitely got the, the denied. (laughs) And now everyone in the world knows this. So, um, sorry guy. but this happens a lot for the disciples. They they think they're going to ask the right question. They think that they have worked their way into something. And Jesus kind of shatters their expectations. You know, it's this upside down kingdom philosophy. We we think that the kingdom of God should work just like the rest of the world, right? Because the rest of the world would say, work as hard as you can, be the strongest, be the most aggressive, When you are in a position of authority, rule with an iron fist. And then things are going to go great. You will experience greatness. And yet Jesus' response in a similar fashion to what he did in chapter 18, says, no, 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 no. If you want to be great, you're not going to become what greatness would be in the world. You're going to become greatness in what I say is within the kingdom. If you want to be great, you need to become a servant. If you want to be 1st you have to become last. There's this interesting moment in the Gospel of John where Jesus is having the Last Supper. He's having communion with his uh, followers. And he uh, bends down and decides because, again, there's more of these conversations about who's the greatest, who's not. And Jesus does something just earth-shatteringly interesting and just breaks so many paradigms by deciding that he is going to wash his disciples' feet. Now, we don't wash people's feet anymore in our culture like when we go to and from. In Indiana, we probably wouldn't do it most of the year anyways because of things like snow. Um, But it was this idea that in a household, kind of living in a desert area, your feet would get dirty. And whenever people would come for a dinner, whoever was the lowliest in the household, it might have been the youngest child, it might have been the lowliest of servant, it was their job to wash the feet of the guests. And so Jesus gave this beautiful personal moment where he, he 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 continues with this style of teaching. One of my favorite things about Jesus is he doesn't really have at all a teaching that he doesn't have some sort of action or parable that goes along with it, which I think is great because if you're like me, sometimes a visual is incredibly helpful for me. And so he bends down and he washes all of his disciples' feet because he wants them to understand this idea of being a servant, being humbled. Man, if you've never experienced a foot washing experience, uh, this is my little plug, uh, on Holy Week, uh, the week before Easter, Thursday, 6.30, we're having a worship night here. We'll have worship, we'll have communion, and there'll be optional foot washing at the end. And uh, if, if you're not into the feet thing, we can work out something else with hands and things like that. But it's such a beautiful moment. You know what I found when it comes to certain experiences like that? I think we don't want to do them because they can kind of feel uncomfortable, right? But I almost wonder if maybe that's the point. You know, I wonder if oftentimes in our life we try to avoid things that Jesus most often would love for us to experience. You know, it's sort of interesting that when you look at the life of Jesus, he doesn't avoid these. I I can't imagine, like, what if he just lied to them during this when they asked these questions? It would be a lot easier to say, like, I'll tell you guys later. Like, that would be a much more diplomatic, like, um... Changing the subject. Ah, did you guys see what was happening on in Galilee? Uh, instead of answering some of these questions in the way he did. But instead he doesn't. He, 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 he reminds us this idea that the kingdom life isn't about success, it is about service. That it's not this idea that in the kingdom of God it's going to be about how we typically think of things where we can achieve and we can just keep going and going and climbing a ladder. There's not enough things we can do. There's not a certain point where you get to this kind of big corner office in the kingdom of God and you are just sort of telling all the minions and the peons to keep going. There's this reality that humility breeds this idea of we're all in this together. And that I am going to do these lowly things as well. And part of the reason why we do this is that if we want people to see a Jesus who is deeply loving, who is with us, who who gets down in the trenches, how are they going to see that if they don't see his followers doing those same things? How is it that a world who is desperately longing for an authority figure, a God, something higher... Who deeply and desperately loves them. How are they going to know that if we don't live it out? We do these things because it reflects this idea of a God who humbled himself even just to come here to this earth, to live the life that he did, and to die the death that he did for us. Man, is that good news. There's a verse in the Gospel of John chapter 15. It's one of my favorites. And it simply says this it says abide in me and I in you some translations would say remain where it says abide as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches whoever abides in me and I in him they will bear much fruit for apart from me they can do nothing. I love this verse for so many reasons, but I think why it's such a great word is that I think it helps remind us that I think at the, at the core of our questions of greatness, of success, it all comes back to this idea that we are all longing to be seen, to be noticed, to be valued. This goes back to all of it, even as children, right? And some of us have some deep scars about that. We deeply and desperately wanted a parent to notice us and it feels like they never did. We deeply and desperately wanted someone uh, from school, someone who we had a crush on. And we know the agony of feeling pushed aside, neglected or not noticed. And so when Jesus teaches this idea about abiding in him, it's this idea that, listen, this is simple. If you would just remain in me, if you would just stay close to me, It wouldn't matter. You would stop asking those questions about how do I become the greatest? Where do I rank all time? We begin to forget and and don't even care about platforms, prestigious. We don't care about the comfort. And we care far more about just being with our Abba Father, our Papa. We just care about wanting to be. It goes back to this idea of being a child. You know, right now, I love playing with my son Gideon. I love playing ball, you know why? He doesn't care. He's not sitting right now and thinking, "I'm going to be the greatest of this. I'm going to work so hard so all of these things can happen. I'm going to do this so my daddy will notice me." All he cares about when we play right now is that he is with his dad who notices him, who sees him, who calls him out and says, "I love you, buddy." That's all that matters. Friends, if I could sum it up like this, and if you miss anything else this morning, please do not miss this. The kingdom is far more concerned with abiding than with achieving. So many of us... Put on these mantles in which we are so focused on if we could just do this, that, and the other. Then so-and-so would care more about me. And oftentimes we relate this over to our relationship with God. Listen, you cannot do enough things to earn the love of God. Do you know why? You can't do anything to earn the love of God. It's already there for you. You just have to reach out and grab it. You just have to choose to remain with Him. To be in Him. You just have to choose to say, Jesus, I can do nothing apart from you. Nothing good can happen out of me. It only can come flowing out of you. And God, I am empty without you. I am broken without you. And I am desperately in need of you. And all you have to do is cry out and say, Lord, I need you. I have fallen short. There's nothing else I can do. Daddy, hold me. And I promise you, he is good. He will reach out touch you. He sees you. He loves you. He values you. Stop trying to earn it yourself. He already earned it for you. My friends, I'm going to ask you to stand in this moment. I'm going to pray for us. Would you take this time as we sing this song to hear from your Abba Father. Hear, son, daughter, I deeply and desperately love you. And hear if maybe there's something He wants to say to you. Some mission He has for you. Let's pray. God, I thank you for who you are. God, I thank you for the fact that, God, you love us so much. That, God, you chose to come here to be with us, to abide with us. And, God, you just say, if you will just be with me, if you will just stay in my presence, if you will just receive me like a child, everything else will fall in place. You won't be perfect. I don't expect you to. No one expects their child to be perfect. They just expect them to listen and try harder and to just keep coming back to him. Father, this morning I pray that maybe if there's someone who, who, who has been distant from you, maybe maybe they've, been, they've never been close to you or maybe they've wandered off. God, I pray this, this morning that they would know that you are good and faithful to forgive. That God, if there's brokenness, there's sin in their life, that God, if they would just confess that and they would just ask for forgiveness, they would know with confidence that you will forgive them, that you will draw them in. And God, I pray that they would know that there is a party going on in heaven in this moment for them. God, I pray for all of us that, God, we could understand this idea that when Jesus said that, that, that his burden is light, that we should take upon his yoke, that, God, we could set aside any sort of expectations the world has put upon us, any expectations we put upon ourselves, and we would just take upon the mantle of son and daughter. Because, God, it is there that we find freedom. God, we love you, and we thank you for Jesus. It's in his name I pray. Amen. Sun sets free always oh, is free. Child of God. Yes, I am. This morning we're going to end a little bit differently. We don't do this all the time, but um, in certain moments when people ask or uh, we just feel led by the Spirit to want to do this, uh, throughout the beginning of the church when when someone would maybe have a sickness, something major was going on in their life. talks about in James that uh, you'd call together, together the elders of the church, and they would lay hands, and they would anoint the person with oil. And it was this symbolic act to just say, uh, we believe that God is going to do great things, and, and we're just asking God to do what only God can do. I'm going to invite my friend Terry Miller and his family on up. Terry uh, is one of my favorite people in the world. Uh, When I think of humility in a servant heart, you can't find uh, many greater than Terry. And uh, also the world's greatest cheesecake you'll ever have. Uh, If you don't believe me, make me a cheesecake and I'll let you know. Terry, though, has been uh, going through some different series of uh, things going on with his heart and uh, soon enough on April 4th my wife's birthday uh, he's going to be having uh, surgery to have some stints put in and uh, there's there's some other things that may be going on in the midst of this but uh, I asked Terry if it'd be all right if we could uh, anoint him and lay hands upon him and just ask God to continue to do what only God can do and uh, ask God to continue to give us comfort and confidence in this moment. So I'm going to ask if you feel comfortable uh, for some of you to come forward and we're going to lay hands uh, on Terry, on his family and, and I'm going to anoint him and we're going to pray. Terry, would you know that you are deeply desperately loved by not only your heavenly father, but your church family. Terry, I anoint you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. God, we thank you for just your unending faithfulness. God, even when it feels like, God, we we have used the last drop. God, even when it feels like, God, we've done too many things wrong, that there's no way that, 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 God, you are done with us. God, you constantly amaze us. As you continue to take care of us. God, you continue to just come near us. And God, you continue to call us nearer to you. God, I love my friend Terry so much. God, I love his family. God, they have been such, such a gift to me and my family. God, they've been such a gift to this church. God, so many hours of of service, of prayer, of just many things to this church. God, I know, and that goes beyond. He has loved you for a long time. God, as he is going to have surgery, on the fourth, God, I pray now that you would calm any nerves. God, I pray that as, as there have been many things that have been unknown, that, God, we have just been walking by faith. God, that is the only true place where we can find peace. God, it is not in knowing that we find peace and comfort, but, God, it is in you and your faithfulness. So, God, we continue to walk by faith, not by sight. God, continue to just make it feel as if for Terry, for Liz, for the entire family, that, God, you are holding their hand and you are not letting go. God, I pray that you would continue to work with the doctors and the nurses and all that will work with him. God, would you give them sharp minds? Would you give them wisdom? But, God, also, we pray that if it would be your will, God, that you would do a miraculous healing. God, we believe that you are the God who can move mountains. God, that you are the God who placed the stars in the sky, who parted the Red Sea, who made the dry bones come to life, the God who came near to us, who raised your Son from the dead. God, we believe in a God who is deeply powerful. And God, we believe that if it's your will, that God, you can show off. That God, you can do something amazing that will just leave people stumped saying it is only God. But God, regardless of what you do, whether it is through that or it is through just the wisdom and the advancements you've given to uh, doctors and medical professionals, God, I pray that you would get the glory at the end of the day on all of us. God, we pray in advance and thank you in advance for what you're going to do. God, we love you and we trust you. And God, we just thank you that you are so good, and God, that you love us. God, thank you for your son, Terry, whom you deeply and desperately love, and who we do too. God, be with him. May he know that you are never distant. God, we love you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.